here's the news. Is the man leading China? Strong man, authoritarian dictator. He's the most powerful man in the world today. What does he want? The Chinese military has grown dramatically. The willingness to see China as a threat is because of Xi Jinping. You want to manhandle China? China will stand up. China's time is now. For Reid Zakaria reports, China's Iron Fist, Sunday on CNN. I'm Max Foster in London, and this is CNN. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Border blocked. Excuse me. Tennis tensions, Chinese media presents an email said to be from the missing star Pong Shui. Concerns rise. India's internet IPO payments giant Paytm plummets in its landmark debut. We've got the CEO and oily operations. The US asks non-OPEC countries to tackle high prices. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome once again to First Move. It's live TV. There are always issues. It is great to be with you as always and fantastic to be with you for another nutritious and newsalicious program. One week to go to the US Thanksgiving holiday feast. And who better to help kick off the calorific countdown than social media guru Food God? Yes, Food God, one of the world's most popular food influencers and industry disruptors with more than 11 million followers across social media. He also happens to be best friends with Kim Kardashian West, and he joins us later in the show. Now, from keeping up with exciting food frontiers to the ever-shifting EV industry gears, Fisker Motors founder Henrik Fisker revs in from LA, where he's unveiling his latest SUV. So we sweep from dining deities to EV car creativities to stock market realities. Wall Street winding up for a strong open after Wednesday's softness with tech in the lead. A volatile day too for the oil markets. Uncertainty over reports that the US has asked non-OPEC plus nations to release strategic reserves. Actions, we have to say, speak louder than words if you want to get those oil prices down. Tech, in the meantime, is trying the patience of investors in Asia. A warning about slowing ad spending in China from internet and AI giant Baidu and e-commerce platform Alibaba also posting softer than expected numbers. We'll explain why very soon. A busy hour coming up. No time to lose. Let's get to the drivers. Concerns are growing for Chinese tennis star Pong Shui. The former number one doubles player has not been seen since earlier this month when she publicly accused China's former vice premier of coercing her to have sex. Ivan Watson has all the details in this report. The royalty of professional tennis expressing concern about the welfare of one of their own. Honestly, it's shocking, you know, that, that she's missing. Warnings echoed by other champions, past and present. I hope Pong Chui and her family are safe and okay, writes Naomi Osaka, adding, 
Hashtag, where is Peng Shui? I've known Peng since she was 14, writes Chris Ebert. Where is she? Peng Shui, a Chinese tennis champion, Peng Shui moves into the quarterfinals, hasn't been seen or heard from in weeks. This is really extraordinary. A top athlete, 35 years old, a name that a lot of people know, formerly number one ranked doubles player in the world, just goes missing, gone. In early November, Peng published this bombshell post on her Chinese social media account. An open letter to a former top communist leader named Zhang Gaoli, now aged 75, who Peng accuses of sexually assaulting her after the two had an affair. Why did you have to come back to me, take me to your home to force me to have sex with you, the post reads. Yes, I did not have any evidence, and it was simply impossible to have evidence. CNN cannot independently confirm these allegations, and we've reached out to Peng as well as Zhang and his wife through the Chinese government for further comment with no results. Shortly after the controversial post, Peng's online profile more or less disappeared. Until recently, Peng Shui was one of the biggest tennis stars in China. But look what happens when you try to search for people with her name in the Chinese internet. You get the message, No results found. Censors have all but scrubbed this woman from the Chinese internet. On Thursday, Chinese state media released this email, purportedly written by Peng to the head of the Women's Tennis Association. It completely disavows the previous allegations of sexual assault, adding, I'm not missing, nor am I unsafe, and I hope Chinese tennis will become better and better. WTA Chairman Steve Simon responded in writing, saying, The statement released today by Chinese state media concerning Peng Shui only raises my concerns as to her safety and whereabouts. I have a hard time believing that Peng Shui actually wrote the email we received. Unable to communicate directly with Peng despite multiple attempts, he's calling for independent and verifiable proof that this Chinese tennis star is safe. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hong Kong. Tennis now, CNN World Sports, Alex Thomas. Alex, great to have you with us. The tennis world, actually other sports stars too, are all coming out now and saying, where is she? What can we do to push further, I think, to get more information about her whereabouts? A lot of disbelief too on whether or not this email actually came from her. It has been a focus. China has been a focus for the World Tennis Association now for some years. Did they have leverage perhaps too to to try and push for more information? Yeah, and it's really going to strain what's been a very successful relationship between China and the WTA, the professional women's circuit. Uh, China with very lucrative deals to host tournaments in their country. And in fact, recently doubling the prize money of the season-ending WTA finals, which should have been held in the Chinese city of Shenzhen, but was moved to Guadalajara in Mexico because of COVID-19. It's due to go back to Shenzhen from next year as part of this multi-year deal. And in fact, making it more lucrative than the equivalent ATP finals on the men's tour. Um, But nonetheless, you've seen that Steve Simon, an American who successfully ran the Indian Wells tournament for many years, has delivered a strong stance on this. He's been in his role for about five years now. He's hugely respected within tennis. And you can see from Ivan's report there um, that this is not going away as far as leading players past and present are concerned. Even the men's world number one, Novak Djokovic, commenting on this. Uh, They all know Peng Shui from her 20 years on tour 
And, you know, although she maybe isn't the most famous player ever to have played the game, she's a high-profile enough figure for none of them to let this go. Yeah, and we'll keep talking about it too. Alex Thomas, thank you so much for that. Okay, next driver, Alibaba on alert. The company missing expectations in its quarterly results as slower Chinese growth and new regulations bite. Alibaba also forecasting the slowest sales growth since going public in 2014. Just for context, though, that's still forecasting growth between 20 and 23 percent year on year. Paul Monica joins me with more. Paul, great to have you with us. These numbers are very confusing. It is a monster business. So we have to break it down and separate, I think, the core retail business from whatever else is going on when we're talking about their profits, because they have public company shareholdings that also, if they go up and down, have implications for the, the profits that they report too. So talk about the core business for us. What's going on? Yeah, the core retail business, Julia, definitely, as you noted, still solid levels of growth, but there is increased competition in China from companies like JD.com, which also reported earnings this morning, and they were pretty solid. That stock is rallying on the news. You have Pinduoduo as well. So Alibaba doesn't really have this stranglehold on the Chinese e-commerce market, and the company acknowledged that due to competition, That is one reason why growth has slowed a bit. The cloud business is definitely growing more rapidly with growth there, revenue growth of about 33% from a year ago. So that is definitely still a solid business that Alibaba will continue to invest in. But e-commerce is definitely something that's going to be a bit tougher for them. And I looked at the international operations as well. The retail commerce there is still growing at 34%. So it's funny when you talk about something slowing, but you're still talking about these kind of double digit numbers. Um, Context is key. If we take a step back, I was looking at the user count, the annual active consumers here is 1.24 billion, just shy of a million of those in China, 285 million overseas. The CEO said back in the last results that they're going to be investing a lot of the profits into improving the customer experience, improving the the merchant experience and attracting more. The ambition is 2 billion customers, I believe, globally between now and 2036. Have anything that we've seen, whether it's on the international side or perhaps more concerning in China, going to limit that growth potential that they're hoping for? What's your view, Paul? Yeah. Yeah, these are very lofty goals, Julia. And I think that for the time being, when you see how Beijing and uh, you know President Xi, they are really trying to exert more control over some of these rapidly growing Chinese companies, it's not something that is exclusive to Alibaba. You have concerns about what this means for Baidu, what does this mean for Tencent, potentially for ByteDance, which owns TikTok. So a lot of these Chinese leaders are coming under the increased regulatory scrutiny from Beijing, and that could limit growth and potentially benefit smaller players that are maybe escaping some of the uh, crackdowns. And I think you know that potentially could be one of the reasons why JD is having stronger growth right now than Alibaba. And we saw that with the Singles Day uh, sales last week. I mean, the numbers were pretty good for both Alibaba and JD, but JD.com posted you know, stronger sales growth than Alibaba during that annual uh, shopping extravaganza. Paula Monica, always great to have your context. Thank you for that. 
Coordinated cooldown. Crude oil is slightly lower this morning amid moves by China and the U.S. to rein in soaring prices. China planning to tap into its strategic oil reserves after the U.S. asked major nations to put more crude on the market. Back in the United States, President Biden ordering a probe into whether oil and gas companies are committing illegal conduct by keeping prices high at the pump. Christine Romans joins me now and I'm, I'm just looking at that. Prices have moved higher since that was written. Very exciting times in the oil markets. Um, Basically, I think the message here is Biden is under serious pressure to do something about oil prices. But these are a global concern. And if he's making outreaches to China, South Korea, Japan to say, hey, can we do something about oil prices here? It's are we tackling supplies or are we tackling prices? Because that's sort of a slippery slope. And it shows you also sort of the limited number of levers the president has, the White House has to right. push and pull here on a very big, very uh, complicated oil global oil market. You know, we've been saying for some time if the president alone tapped the Strategic Petroleum Reserve of the United States, it could even backfire and send a signal of maybe desperation. It would be a very limited uh, near term impact, if any, on, on, on global supply. But a coordinated approach with America's allies, that at least sends a message to OPEC plus and says that um, the world's um, big consumers of energy are serious about trying to make sure how to get more supply out there. You can see in um, the very bottom buried in the White House readout from that President Xi, President Biden meeting, they also discussed the importance of taking measures to address global energy supplies. We have seen a coordinated effort before, back in 2011, um, when there was war in Libya. Um, and so you have seen um, allies do this before. But it just it just shows you uh, how demand is um, outstripping supply so desperately on the, on the global front here. I mean, prices were down a little bit yesterday. We saw some Cushing, Oklahoma supplies in the U.S. that were uh, a little more favorable in the near term. But I think I think you're looking at a kind of a volatile market here and the White House, this White House under intense pressure to look like it's doing something about inflation, even as the overall economy is strong. Including perhaps a push for an FTC investigation into whether there's some kind of collusion going on in the oil and gas industry to, to, to keep prices high. The industry clearly not happy and saying, please. Yeah, they say it's a distraction. The American Petroleum Institute right away saying this is this is a distraction. But again, it shows a White House that's trying to say we're going to do everything we can to get to the bottom of why prices are rising so quickly. And if there is anything, um, if there's any malfeasance there, the API says um, the price bank is it's about how demand has returned and the economy has reopened, outpacing supply. This is a, a supply demand picture and also throwing some barbs at, at the White House um, about, uh, you know, decisions to restrict access to America's energy. They said we should be pumping, doing everything we can to pump more oil and gas in the U.S. So that's you know no surprise there, that position. But I just think all of it illustrates how much pressure this White House is under yeah. to look like it's doing something about inflation. I mean, I can tick through all of these things that are going right in the American economy, including, you know, jobless claims that are almost back to pre-pandemic levels, you know, all this excess cash in Americans' bank accounts. But it is that weekly trip to the grocery store and the we- weekly filling up the tank of gas that is at for, on the forefront of Americans' minds. And there's COVID exhaustion. Inflation and COVID exhaustion are these two things that are weighing on both consumer sentiment and I think on the White House poll numbers. So this is, uh, inflation really is, is the issue number one right now in terms of the economy. Yeah, price and pandemic pinch. And yeah. it hurts. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. More than 400 Iraqi migrants who were stranded in Belarus have boarded a flight back home. 
Amid freezing conditions, they had been waiting for weeks close to the border with Poland in the hope of getting into the EU. The special Iraqi Airways flight will land in Erbil and then Baghdad. In the meantime, hundreds of other migrants at the border have been moved to a processing centre in Belarus. Germany has reported more than 65,000 new cases of COVID in the past day, the most since the pandemic began. Chancellor Angela Merkel says the situation is dramatic as lawmakers debate new rules to try and control it. The health minister is urging people to get vaccinated. And earlier, an advisory committee recommended booster shots for everyone over the age of 18. A jury in Wisconsin enters its third day of deliberations today in the homicide trial of Carl Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse shot and killed two people and wounded a third during unrest last year in the city of Kenosha. He told the court he was acting in self-defense. So far, the jury has asked the court a handful of questions and reviewed video evidence. Still to come on First Move, pricing puzzle. A share price tumble takes the shine off. Internet payments giant Paytm's IPO. I speak to the CEO next and keeping up with the food god. Kim Kardashian's best friend says he eats out 365 days a year so we don't have to. He joins us to talk about his new show and his favourite snacks. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Lots of green on the screen on Wall Street pre-market with continued strong gains on tap for retail. Call it an ongoing miracle on 34th Street, another big retailer raising full-year guidance. This time it's Macy's set to soar 13% after a big sales beat in Q3. Big moves in tech too. Gaming chip designer NVIDIA set to rise 9% after reporting record revenues, offsetting weakness from network equipment maker Cisco, they warned of worsening parts shortages. No shortage of breaking news overseas, too. The U.S. dollar hitting fresh all-time highs against the Turkish lira. The Turkish central bank slashing rates by 1%, a third straight monthly cut, even in the face of soaring inflation. The bank hinting, though, that cuts are coming to an end. News, perhaps, to President Erdogan, who's inflicted extraordinary pressure on the central bank to ease lending conditions this year. Now to India's biggest ever IPO. Paytm is an Indian digital payments giant. It also offers a huge range of other services from e-commerce to fantasy sports and even trading in gold. As of March this year, Paytm had 21 million merchants on its platform. Total payments made to merchants on the app grew 75% over the past two years. This morning, Paytm went public at a valuation of over $20 billion. Its CEO paying tribute to the IPO on Twitter saying India has transformed, quote, but shares dropped some 27% on Paytm's first day of trade. Joining us with much to discuss, Vijay Shekhar He's founder and CEO of Paytm. Vijay, fantastic to have you on the show as always. We can talk about the, the move that we saw in the share price, but let's talk about what this moment represents, not only for India, but for you. You're an 11-year-old company, and this is a huge, huge moment. Thank you for having me here, Julia. And I cannot say it enough in words that it is phenomenal. It is unprecedented ever that we would have imagined that we as a team, we have, as a company would have reached here where we would have been identified as the largest IPO ever in India. And we would have been able to do a public market debut in India. Remember, technology companies were always chasing to go to think of going and listing in U.S. markets. And India, for the first time, has become the choice destination. And I'm very happy, very proud that we are listed in India and we are able to pull off such a large IPO in India. Incredible day for every Paytm 
personally very gratifying. Yeah, I saw pictures of you when you were ringing the opening bell and you were actually quite tearful as well. I know, I know it's a huge moment. Um, it's only one day of trade, but it obviously was a big move. What do you think happened? Do you think perhaps you were advised poorly? A lot of people going into this were saying you were priced for perfection. You were asking a lot of money and this was a high valuation. Um, valuation is something that I believe that uh, many public market investors decided and we sort of got subscribed, etc. also. So I'd say that one of the things that we could have done better is that we would have announced a few more quarters of result. Our execution plan will bring comfort to a lot more people. And uh, I'd say that uh, our story, which is a new story, new business model in this country, our business model of led by payment offering financial services is a new business model for uh, uh, many public market investors, need to be explained much better. And numbers which come in subsequent quarter will explain it much better. Yeah, so maybe it was a timing thing, just, just came to market yeah. perhaps a little bit early. Um, one of the big questions, and I think what didn't help here was McQuarrie analysts. They called you a cash burn machine with no clear path to profitability. And I think this goes to the point that you made. What is the path, VJ? What can you say to investors today about how long it's going to take for you to get to a point where you're breaking even? And then we can talk about profitability. Where's the break even point? How far out are we from that? So one of the best thing I can tell you about our business model is that our monetization journey literally started two years back. Before that, we were definitely in large investment phase where we were bringing in large number of customers and merchants and businesses on our platform for payments, if you, as you know. And in last two years, we were able to start to deliver different, different financial services beyond just the commerce services that you quoted in the beginning. So... I would say that it is very early days to say that uh, we would not be profitable because I think it's it's clear. I mean, when we are executing the business month on month and next additional quarters, our numbers and revenues will do the job of talking. And I do believe that when numbers would talk, these uh, expectations or sort of uh, assumptions where we could not be profitable or we would not generate so much of revenue would get calmed out. So I'm here for... Uh, long term and we are here for a business model that has been proven in many parts of the world that yes we can generate large amount of revenues obviously our starting of the business required regulatory confirmations and so on june 2020 is when our credit business started and it is showing phenomenal phenomenal numbers to quote and the only catch is that we in subsequent quarter will be able to speak of those numbers uh, when we start announcing the results and i'm sure that time this very fact that uh, whether we can make a lot of money or a lot of re revenues or uh, break even will automatically be answered. So I would rather let my numbers be an answering this instead of a timeline. Yeah, which I fully understand. And the proof, of course, will be in the pudding, which is a very British phrase. But I think you know what I'm saying. It's just for investors, the uncertainty, at least at this stage, is, is a challenge. Um, yes. You have 330 million customers. It's not just about payments. As I mentioned in the introduction, the prospect of perhaps providing financial services, I think, is alluring too. One of the other things you have to tackle, I think, is competition. Even if people like your business model and think that the opportunity in India in particular, as we see more mobile penetration, um, is good, there's fierce competition too. Google, Flipkart, um, I can name a whole host of players, Amazon, potentially, that the big tech players that could come in and perhaps disrupt your disruptive business. 
What do you say about the competition and what differentiates you in your mind? The, one of the best thing I can tell you is that India is a market that demands incredible execution, not just capital. And I believe that somebody sitting outside India, far away, cannot even just by capital allocation solve the problems or capture the opportunity of India. It's very clearly seen that Indian entrepreneurs, fellow entrepreneurs, and ourselves as PTM team has been able to execute and out-execute any amount of capital that has been dumped in this country. Mm-hmm. Like you said, we have in all these large corporate or large global big tech companies. At the same point of time, we continue to remain market leaders. And in a market where everybody else is also there, remaining a market leader and winning a market share and winning large revenues in comparison to them is what I think is my answer to that, that, well, there is competition and that is an acknowledgement that we have a great product and great service to our customers and that is what matters to the customer and market. Just because you are a large company with large amount of capital, you can win in the market is never so in a consumer internet or financial services business as you know. Yes, the key is time will tell. BJ, great to have you on. Yeah. Congratulations once again because I know this is a big moment and it's a huge for your team and all your hard work. We will speak again soon. Thank you. Shekhar Sharma there, founder and CEO of Paytm. Thank you. Okay, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Thursday, a mostly higher open with the biggest gains for tech stocks. The S&P close to record highs once again, too, as you can see, up a quarter of a percent at this stage. Investors ready to kick the electric vehicle tyres at the L.A. Auto Show, where new models are being rolled out this week. Hope they buy some, too. Lots of big EV moves on Wall Street this week as well. Truckmaker Rivian is actually lower for a second day after Wednesday's 15 percent drop. That's actually its first losing session since last week's blockbuster IPO. And it soared, of course, look at that, $136, the share price there. Lucid under a little bit of pressure to down some 8% or just shy of. And Fisker higher in the session today. Just for context, Lucid up 400% year to date. Fisker up 46%. And Fisker is plugging in and charging up in a bid to challenge Tesla, the California-based EV maker, unveiling its Ocean SUVs at the LA Auto Show today. The base model will go on sale for less than $40,000, about $20,000 cheaper than Tesla's Model Y, which is what it's often compared to. Fisker says the ocean will have a greater range than the Model Y, too. Joining us now, Fisker founder and CEO, Henrik Fisker. Henrik, always great to have you on the show. Tell us what's most exciting about the debut today. Well, you know, we got so many exciting things, but one of them is that we have the world's longest range in uh, mm-hmm. in our price segment and type of car for an SUV crossover, so up to 350-mile range. But I think the other cool feature a lot of people love is the turning screen. So we're able to actually, by push of a button, you can turn your screen from portrait mode to landscape mode if you want to watch a movie or play a game when you're charging. And then, of course, we got uh, a fully vegan interior with a lot of recycled materials, so sustainability is definitely number one at Fisker. So we spent a lot of time on that. So just too many things to, to, to keep talking about because <laughs> there's a lot. I know. I was going to ask you about Hollywood mode because that is something I think that we've never seen before. The screen that allows you effectively to turn the car into a cinema. I mean, for the future autonomous driving days, that's going to be pr- pretty cool. Um, the other thing I spotted, and we have to talk about that, the sunroof because that's going to provide some degree yeah. of solar capacity depending on where you are in the world. And that means extra mileage too. 
Yeah, you can get up to 1,500 miles under pretty good conditions, like in California, for example. And if you do do sort of a crawling commute, you can maybe get up to 2,000 miles a year. And, you know, those are free, emission-free, no cost. So we are super excited about that. It's a very difficult and tricky thing to do to actually get a solar panel to charge into a high-voltage battery on a vehicle, specifically if that vehicle is parked, because imagine you've closed it down. So we actually have to make an invention. We have taken IP on to actually get that to work. So we are very excited about that. And then we also got doggy windows, which is small windows at the rear of the vehicle that can roll down and your dog can stick the <laughs> snout out and get some fresh air. And of course, California mode that opens the car completely up. Clearly, I'm a huge fan of all the gimmicks. We love the doggy windows. Um, how are you managing this? How are you managing to have something that has longer range that you're pricing significantly below cars like Tesla's Y, which is it's being compared to? How are you achieving it, Henrik? So we have done a couple of different things. First, we are super asset-like companies that I don't have to pay electricity or real estate taxes on giant manufacturing plants because we are working with a contract manufacturer, Magna Steyr, which has a, actually a CO2 uh, uh, neutral factory uh, where we are building our vehicles. Secondly, uh, you know, we don't have dealers. We sell direct. Uh, we have a unique service uh, infrastructure with uh, a partner where we don't have to build dealerships and, again, don't have to have people sitting waiting for somebody to come into service. And then finally, we spend a lot of time looking at what we call built the materials for this vehicle. And we ordered all these materials in high volume, worked very closely together with Magna, but also have multiple companies. So it, it was not an easy task to do, but it was a goal for me to have a vehicle that started at 37,500 and we achieved it. I'm really proud of that. Yeah, I mean, the asset light model is interesting, but it relies on you to do all the PR to get the message out in an increasingly what feels like crowded, even if the market opportunity going forward is huge. I believe you also have um, Chinese batteries as well. So can you address perhaps two of the concerns there? One, that all the marketing and the promo comes down to you. And are you introducing potential supply chain risks with foreign made batteries? Well, I think, first of all, I think we have less supplier risk than many other startups because we have signed firm deals with some of the biggest suppliers in the world. A CATL is the biggest battery supplier in the world. They probably have some of the best batteries. We get two different battery packs from them. One is LFP, less energy dense uh, technology, but it's a lot cheaper. And that's also partly why we can have a lower price in our vehicle. And then, uh, you know, when you talk about the rest of the supply chain, like Magna, they're the third largest automotive supplier in the world. And, you know, I like to compare to kind of what we're doing is sort of what you see with Apple. They don't make any of their own products. Uh, and I think that's the route we have taken. I think it's old thinking to think that you must own a car factory uh, because you're making uh, a vehicle. The truth is also there is no car company on the planet that are 100% virtually integrated. Everybody uses suppliers for something. Um, so everybody has a supplier risk, if that's what you would call it. Yeah. I think we have set up really well. We're the only EV maker who hasn't... Uh, announced a delay in our vehicle. We're still on time schedule to uh, start production November. We'll probably start uh, delivering some cars before November next year because we are kind of ahead of schedule and we start building two cars a day in the factory already in a few months. It's exciting times. Henrik, what do you think of the share price enthusiasm that we're seeing in the market? I mean, I've been mentioning the astonishing performance of, of Rivian after its IPO. Tesla's now worth a trillion dollars plus, although it's had a few uh, ropey days. I, I know you can't really focus on valuations and share prices, but do you think there's too much enthusiasm sort of 
bobalicious, even if the prospects for the future for EV cars is um, is interesting, is exciting. It's very exciting. First of all, I think that means there's a hundred x upside for Fisco, which is great for us now. I know, good spot. <laughs> I don't think I valuation. But I think there's something fundamental behind it, quite frankly, and that is, I think uh, Wall Street and the investors in Wall Street have decided that, or believe, that probably at least half of all vehicles sold in 2030 is going to be made by us, the new EV players. And that is a gigantic market potential in the trillions of dollars. Of course, it means that some of the traditional car makers are going to lose market share. But if you look at it now, uh, it was a new EV company that made the world's longest range. It wasn't a traditional car maker. Uh, we are the first one to come up with an SUV, electric SUV that starts at $37,000. So it's clear the innovation is happening in new EV space. It's tough to turn around an old oil tanker. You know, it takes a long time. Yeah. And having an electric speedboat goes a lot faster. Elon Musk said of Rivian, and I do think it's an important question for, for all of these uh, for all of you guys, um, the acid test here, the real test here is when you can mass produce at scale and you can break even. And then you obviously hope to go on and make profits because it is a capital intensive business and you're keeping it as light as you possibly can, as you've said. Is that the acid test or is it consumers deciding that you're their pick? Well, I think it's the last one first. You've got to be able to sell your product. Nobody cares how many cars you can produce if you can't sell them. So that's number one. I mean, we got an over 19,000, now over probably 20,000 orders, uh, reservations a year before launching our vehicle, and they keep climbing every day. So that's number one. Number two, you do need to be able to scale up. Uh, it is much more hard to manufacturing a car that, that most people even could imagine. You've got to fit, you know, 1,500 parts together that are coming from all over the place, logistics, everything else. So we are going into a machine, which is called Magna, which has made millions of cars. There are people working there together for 25 years. It's a running machine. They manufacture vehicles for many different premium brands. So I have no doubt that we can accelerate and build cars faster than any of our EV friends companies out there, our competitors. Uh, I, you know, we're planning to ramp up to 40 to 50,000 cars uh, in f first full year 23. And after that, uh, we can easily do over 100, 150,000 vehicles. Uh, it's just a matter of, of getting enough reservation and orders in, and it looks really good right now. Exciting times. Henrik, great to have you with us. Thank you. Henrik Fisker, founder and CEO of Fisker there. Okay, coming up here on First Move, I hope you're hungry because a food god, the food god, is going to be talking about his latest show on Discovery Plus and taking us through the latest and craziest edible trends. Next. Welcome back to Fast Moving. Oh, do I have a sweet treat for you. What's up, guys? My name is Food God, and yes, I legally changed it. The word out about the newest restaurant. <laughs> We're getting the lowdown on the boldest and craziest food with a food god. And as you've seen, that's not Hyperbole. That's his name. And the uh, title of his new show on Discovery Plus, you may know Food God better as his former alias, Jonathan Chiran, the social media titan, a regular on Keeping Up with the Kardashians beside bestie Kim Kardashian West. And Food God joins us now. Great to have you on the show. How exciting. Um, we clearly need to discuss your new yes. show, but I have to ask to start. Um, what makes someone wake up one day and go, you know what, I'm going to legally change my name to Food God and you're going to get an F tattoo on your neck, which I believe you have as well. well to what be honest, I've, I've been on the biggest show in the world for about 
14 years, and when I decided to be Food God, I was like, I'm going all the way. You know, I've learned <laughs> from the best, and I've taught the best. So I said, you know what? I'm just doing it. I'm going to go to court. I got a lawyer, and uh, it took about a year to do it, get to court. And I legally changed it to Food God. It's one word, actually, like share, Madonna, Food God. It's a brand. What did your mother say? Uh, she was in the courtroom, and the judge asked her. And when he said, what do you think of it? I gave my mom the dirtiest look. I turned back just to make sure there was no changing her mind. So she knows what it is. She knows, you know, we hit the streets. Everybody knows Food God. People actually all over the world that uh, anywhere I go, people know Food God now. And uh, she really appreciates it. She knows how hard I work for it. Yeah. I, I mean, I've been out with you, and I've seen it. Um, food is <laughs> at the core of what you do. Um, but let's be clear. It's, it's about way more than that. As you've kind of alluded to here, it's a brand. Um, it's a business model. It's For me, escapism means realism because you give us a sense of what's going on in the world and allow us to perhaps live outside our own lives. But the person that we see on TV is very you. Uh, it's very me. I am the same way I am in all my videos on social media. That's why it works, you know, and that's what I realized when I started doing food because there's other people that were doing that. I said, what separates me from them is my personality. I've, you know, I've been on television for so long and I really like to give it. I don't hide it. It is me, whether I'm throwing something or eating something fast or something over the top. <laughs> it's just, it's very me. I am me when I do it. You know, I read it um, when I first got to know who you were, an article in the LA Times from a couple of years ago, and they absolutely lambasted you. Who is this upstart? He doesn't even cook. He doesn't know anything about food. Um, how can he be a food critic anyway? Um, you were disrupting what is a existential uh, industry, I think, assessing food around the world. Why do you think they were so defensive? nervous well, by what you, you were know doing. What? It was great because they put me on the cover of the LA Times. So for me, that was already something where I've disrupted the industry. Um, it was 85% positive because it is exciting what I do, but there's always the 15% of people that they go to that say, I don't know who he is or, you know, he's not a food critic. Yeah, I'm not a food critic. I have a lot more power. I have 11 million people that follow me. So if you want a food critic to give you a local review, that's <laughs> great. But if you want someone that gives you a worldwide review for people that come from different states, different countries, that's what I do. And not only that, I find really special original stuff. I'm not just reviewing a Dover Soul. You know what? I'm reviewing a Dover Soul done in a crazy chocolate butter or something. So it's got to be something really fun and original. I mean, let's talk about the show on Discovery Plus, because in the first episode, you're with Kim Kardashian West, who's one of your best friends. It's colorful uh, candy floss. And that really, I think, was for the children. My favorite episode had stained glass sushi, which was pretty magical. To your point, um, it's unique food. This is not just about run-of-the-mill food reviews. It's right. extreme, elaborate. Yes, it's, it's extreme. And that's actually with Chef Morimoto, who's one of the you know, most renowned chefs in the world. And that's what I do. I do things like that. I, I mean, with Morimoto, with Kim, and then other places that are local places that I love. So I hit everything. And that's the difference between mine. I'm not just going to Michelin star restaurants. No, I can end up at a pub. I can end up at a, a place that has buffalo wings or a place that has the most expensive food or the most expensive burger in the world. And that's the difference. You never know what's coming. And that's how it is with my Instagram. You never know what it's going to be. It's going to be something crazy, something expensive, or something that's literally $5. Do, do they come to you or do you go to them? And, and who pays? Because it's the economics 
of what you've built, I think that fascinates me as well. And I think a lot of people, when they see the comments that you eat out 365 days a year, and I know you've said that, and I've, I've seen you work, people want you to try their food. But how does it work in terms of the financials? Because you have to establish your independence too. Again, it sure. comes back to you being real about what you're talking about. Sure. Well, you're honest lot, with your opinions. Yes. Well, 90% of the stuff I find, I search, it takes hours. It's a this is a full-time job. I don't just go eat, believe me. If I just went to eat, I'd be like everybody else. I mean, this is a full job. You know, I sit there, I analyze everything, I search the restaurants, I see where they are, who's going there. But uh, 90% of it is just me looking and finding something that I know people will react to. Then because of my big following, places will reach out to me and say, hey, we want to do a social media deal with you or we want to do a big endorsement. You know, I'm doing something with a lot of big brands, uh, a brand called Dickies, which is going to, in 600 stores, I'm doing like a food god rib with them. Uh, I'm going to be doing something with Fridays, which is a national brand. So I have a lot of brand deals separate from people at restaurants that call me and say, hey, we want to pay you to come to our, because that doesn't mean I'm going to find their place out of all the thousands and thousands of restaurants. So, but it's never just about the money. I promise you, if that place does not have anything, that's the first thing I say, what's different? What's, it, it won't look good. It, people will not react to it if it's not special. And I'm really, really, really picky. So if you come with it, just money, it, that's not it. It's not about that. The money so is just actually, like, it is yes. a poor, it is a pure advertising brand model, but you have to be super selective within it because otherwise you're damaging your own brand. So you can accept the money, but you're saying, look, what's unique about you and what's different about you? One, because Absolutely. that matters to me but and my a, brand. But that's a small piece. That's a small piece of it, the money part, because that's just a few Instagram posts. The other ones are actual real endorsements, and I'm building, you know, a whole product line with ice creams and snacks, and you know, I have truffle ketchup. I have my whole line of salad dressings coming out. But most of the stuff is all stuff that I just find that I want to put up. It's not about getting paid to go there. I know that something people are going to react to that. So I, I need content. So it's not just about money or someone paying me to go to that. Those are people that actually want me specifically to come to their place that I wouldn't find on my own. They reach out and say, how do we get in touch with you? How do we get you there? But the other stuff is all stuff that I find on my own and I just put it and no, nobody's paying me to do any of it. You know, yeah. it's just, it is building a brand. It's endless amount of work. I, how many hours a day do you work? Oh, I actually go to sleep with my phone. I wake up with my phone. And, you know, to me, I'm basically like a modern day food critic. So it's like I have to know what restaurants are hot, what's coming out, what dishes in restaurants that are not just hot that are coming out, what fast food companies are doing with new, you know, chicken nuggets or new ice creams or new whatever. It is. So I have to I'm on the phone constantly doing research and I have teams with all my products. So I deal with one team for this, one team for that, one team for appearances. It's a 24 hour day job. It's not like, oh, I'm just going to eat. It's a whole industry. I have a whole entire company. I have, you know, my managers, my publicists, my teams, my everything. It's a whole assistance. Everybody works to get stuff together. It's a whole army. Yeah, I was going to say, you're asking my next question, what your advice would be for people who have an idea, a concept, want to build their social media following, want to build a brand, want to monetize it ultimately, because to your point, you've got an army, but it's an industry too. Is that your advice? I guess no sleep. Uh no, my, really advice is, my advice is honestly stay consistent. And because, you know, when I started Food God, people were like, what's Food God? Ha ha. You know, like they don't get it. They don't get it. And even some with the name, they didn't understand that. 
but like I just went through it. I just kept going and going and yep, keep laughing. Oh, cover the LA Times. Oh, keep laughing. Huge endorsement deals. Oh, products, keep laughing. And you know, now a TV show on Discovery Plus named Food God. So you want to laugh, you could laugh, you could do but the consistency is key. You got to stick with it. Don't let anybody tell you, oh, that's not going to work. That's not. If you think that it's going to work and it's actually like a normal credible idea, not something that's really weird, uh, that has a, you know, 80% chance of working. You just got to keep going with it. Don't start diverting because people are telling you to do other things like, oh, well, maybe you should do this. Take the advice, you know, move the needle a little bit, but really, really stay focused on it. Do not veer off of that exact plan. Like I want to, I want to start posting about cool fashion stuff on my Instagram, but I don't. I'm food God. People come to me for food. So you just keep with the food. For now. My friend, I think the, uh, the answer there is he who lasts last, lasts longest. Um, keep working. Food God, fun to see what you're doing. And Discovery Plus is the new show. Thank you. Thank you for Bye, joining Julia. us. Bye, Julia. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, up next. The three amigos return. The leaders of the United States, Mexico, and Canada revive a summit that got sidelined under the Trump presidency. That's up next. Stay with us. The leaders of the United States, Canada, Mexico will meet today at the White House for talks referred to as the Three Amigos Summit. It's back. The talks are the first since 2016. The three-sided forum was shunned under President Trump. Paula Newton joins me now. Perhaps relations better, but there's a few buy now and buy America provisions that perhaps these guys will have some issues with when they meet with Biden, too. Absolutely. And Three Amigos is not the official name, but we really shouldn't say these people are amigos any longer. You know, it's fascinating here, Julia. This hasn't (laughs) happened in five years. You think they'd be getting along a little bit better. They are not. And Mexico and Canada together from the United States are not feeling the love from the Biden administration. Listen, writ large, what's on the table? The pandemic, economic cooperation, climate, migration. There are tensions on each and every one of these topics. But specifically what you were talking about, Julia, is that by American provision in all of this legislation making its way through Congress right now, it is Biden's signature legislation on so many levels. And guess what? By U.S. provisions in them, shut out Mexico and Canada. And both countries are saying this is no way to treat your friends. But more importantly, this is no way to try and create a strong and firm economic block that is prosperous, especially given that so much of the migration issues that Mexico talks about are mm. related to the economy. Stay tuned. We are not expecting a lot of deliverables and hopefully no one will utter the word amigos. Yeah, you're right. Hand slap. <laughs> Naughty. Apologies for that. Pink ladies today too, Paula. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. And that wraps up First Move. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. And we'll be back tomorrow, Friday. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.